Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the blah, 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 where we do the da-da-da and movies and stuff. <laughs> okay, is that the new, is that the new tagline? <laughs> That's what my brain can fully form at the moment. The MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. You, Keith Foster, are from San Diego, California, back with us after a bit of a hiatus. Yes, and you are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes, and we're going to play a little bit of catch up here before we jump into the show, but before we... uh, we do that. I do want to say today we will be talking about the Marvels. Whoever out there saw it and still remembers it, we are going. <laughs> we're going to cover it uh, in a belated celebration of Noir Vember, <laughs> <laughs> mid December Noir Vember. Uh, we will be talking about the Michael Fassbender and David Fincher film, The Killer, which was released. Uh, it was it had a short theatrical run and then put on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And for the streaming homework, we will be talking about the 1947 noir, Out of the Past, which is available to watch on HBO Max. Keith, how have you been? I'm fine. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> I follow yeah, you uh, a little bit on Twitter, of course, and it seems like you've been seeing basically every movie that I haven't been able to. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of a, a, a last... Well, I don't know. Have I seen that many movies? I saw Godzilla Minus One, which um, I, I... Yeah, I don't know if you'll be able to get to theaters to see it in its small window, um, but highly recommend... Uh, what else have I seen that you, that you've taken notice of? I don't know. Just every every time I talk to you or something, you're in or out of a movie. I figured you were probably seeing the stuff. I oh, I did get to see. Uh, AMC is doing a cool thing right now. It's it's kind of a newer thing they're doing called AMC Unseen where you can get a ticket to a movie that hasn't officially released yet. It's only a $5 ticket, but you don't know what you're going to see. Is that like preview screenings where you like fill out what the, like the effects no, aren't finished and stuff? No, it's different than a preview screening. Cause I've, I've seen like a few of those. Um, it, Cause preview screenings are typically free. This mm-hmm. does cost $5. Um, so it's just like you're paying $5 for a mystery movie and it's, I've only done it once so far, but I was able to see American fiction. Um, that turned out to be the movie that we were screening mm-hmm. and it, it came out, you know, we were able to screen it like two weeks early or something. Right. Um, it seems like it's more for sort of indie movies that they're not sure 
you know, it, it makes sense. Like smaller movies that might not have a huge box office. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of marketing it through this whole mystery thing. Um, they, they also have a horror version called AMC Scream Unseen. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it's just like, I love I love mystery boxes. I love blind boxes. I love like going to a restaurant and being at the chef's mercy. Like I just love, I don't know what I'm going to get. I'm just give me this experience. Um, So I've only done it once so far and it was a ton of fun. Okay. Well, I'm sure throughout the rest of the award season, we'll be catching up with the major titles as permits. So, at the top of the show, I just do want to announce that uh, the reason why we haven't done a show for about a month is I ran into a bit of a medical emergency, and it had to be taken care of pronto, and it kind of laid me up in several different ways and made my schedule very cattywampus, so it's hard to kind of kind of make this work. On the plus side... I now have much more time to edit. (laughs) I don't have to fit editing in like two hours before I go to bed anymore. I can actually use the afternoon to do that. Um, So hopefully we'll get sort of back on track. Uh, For the time being, this is going to be an audio-only podcast, the video format, which is not tearing up. YouTube as it is, but uh, well, we just barely got into that. I know we I are mean, like six videos in, yeah. Um, but we uh, right now it is going to be audio only, so the best way to listen to the show is through whatever podcast app you, you normally use iTunes or Spotify or player.fm, all that jazz. Uh, and of course, all the archives are on mcguff.in. But that is pretty much all I wanted to announce at the top of the show as far as what's going on with me. I have been able to watch some things, which is, you know, <laughs> luckily I brought my iPad to my little hospital stay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that got me through some stuff. So, But I want everyone to know that I am doing fairly well. I'm on the recovery, but things are it just as far as scheduling and life goes is different. Yeah, it might be a little less um, uh, regular, but we'll, you know, we're going to do our best to, you know, we still both love movies and love talking about movies and um, appreciate everybody who listens to us. So, um, you know, we're going to do our best to continue doing the show. Um, it, you know, just might be a little bit different for a little while. Yeah. Release days might change or uh, we might have to skip a week or something like that if I have an appointment that pops up. But, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, keep tuning in. Follow us on social media. You'll see when episodes drop. So, Keith. Yes. I'm giving you the floor. We're going to start with our reviews of the week. Tell me a little bit about Marvel Cinematic Universe's The Marvels. Yeah. So this movie is so far the biggest 
underperforming movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is about Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. She returns to the big screen, this time with the help of a couple of sidekicks, uh, Kamala Khan from the Disney Plus show Miss Marvel and, and Monica Rambeau. And there's a sort of galactic kerfuffle that entangles their powers together forcing them to team up in a situation where you know they have to face this galactic threat in in, in a way that they're not used to using their specific powers um couple of these characters have only been seen so far i think in the disney plus shows kamala khan was introduced in her show miss marvel and uh, monica rambeau i believe was well she was first introduced in the first captain marvel movie as a kid and then um there's sort of a time jump and then we get reintroduced to her character in wandavision um which is where she sort of gets her powers yeah, and then they have to take on this Kree threat, going about the universe, gathering supplies from planets that... I That part's a little hard to explain. But, Sci-fi uh, nonsense, that's all you have yeah, to say. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> facing a galactic threat. Um, and yeah, this movie is actually a ton of fun. Despite uh, your description. well here's so here's the thing i think this movie lives and breathes on the the setup of this team this sort Mm -hmm. of you know ragtag come together uh you know this isn't the avengers this isn't even guardians of the galaxies these are just a few characters that are just kind of thrown together through circumstance um but they have a ton of chemistry and it's a lot of fun and it actually addresses most of my issues with the first Captain Marvel movie. It makes Carol Danvers like a much more relatable protagonist, not even relatable. I, I hate that term, but it make it just, it's a lot more fun and you get a lot more sense of her as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, her teammates are, are great foils for her and it's fun to see her in a situation where her powers are a little more limited um you know she can't kind of go god mode super saiyan and just like blow up whatever threat she's facing or whatever um they have to sort of figure out this way to come together as a team and a lot of that is where the movie finds its charm um the space adventure is, you know, it's a pretty standard Marvel threat. Um, it's a pretty standard Marvel uh, plot as far as that goes. But what I like about it, it feels very like sort of phase two MCU where it has sort of, you know, it just feels like a sci-fi adventure. It, it doesn't have a lot of the baggage that, a lot of the more recent Marvel fair has had of figuring out what they're doing post in game and what, it, how does this fit into the bigger picture and blah, 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 blah. Like 
it just kind of is a genre thing. And it's light. It's under two hours, which is nice. That is nice. Um, it, it doesn't... It doesn't feel like it has to trade in we're going to be epic and big in scale. Like the the story feels smaller, but I think that's a good thing. Like it feels more intimate. It feels more character oriented. And, uh, you know, just a lot of the setups, just a lot more rewarding as far as that goes, like it, it, it takes its time. It doesn't bite off more than it can chew. Yeah, it's just sort of a breezy sci-fi movie. It's what Ant-Man Quantumania should have been. Yes, absolutely. It's not over convoluted like Ant-Man was. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think Ant-Man is a great comparison because Ant-Man, you know, I think a lot of people felt very frustrated by the third installment because it didn't feel like the first two Ant-Man movies. It became this sort of space, weird space adventure. Mm. It was trying to like lay the groundwork for all this Kang, blah, blah, blah. The third act was this insane, like unnecessary war. Yeah. Yeah. And this all feels a lot more personal and grounded and just meant to sort of make us like these characters, which I did. This is the most I have liked Carol Danvers, Brie Larson's Carol Danvers in the MCU. Right. She gets to keep her, you know, badass mystique, but Mm -hmm. it's really fun to see her interact with, you know, a 17-year-old girl. Okay. So a couple follow-ups. Surrounding her with a team... It kind of loosens up the character, makes her less stoic. It gives her, cause I believe I, I like Brie Larson as an actress and I think she can be very funny. Um, yes. but we saw none of that before. No, I, yes, absolutely. This is like, I feel like I kind of get her character a lot more than I did from the first one. Cause the first one had this sort of noir ish undertone you know mm-hmm. it was about this character who didn't remember her past she was figuring out who what who she was mm-hmm. this i feel like she has a pretty firm like grasp on who that character is and it's really charming and 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 nice to see her play in that space mm-hmm. um and i just think brie larson seems a lot more confident in the character yeah, and I don't I don't know if it's solely because she has these, you know, sort of two Foils. other characters to play off of, but it helped a lot. Okay, second question. How much zany cat humor? Uh, I would say there is enough to satisfy people who enjoy zany cat humor, but I don't think it steals the the focus of the show. I mean, I don't know. There was I guess, how much would you say was in the first movie? Uh, hair too much. <laughs> There's kind of a whole subplot with the cat. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to go too much into it, but it, I don't know. I appreciated it. I like, there's, I will say there are way more cats. Okay. So mileage may vary on people's tolerance of the cat humor. It, it, 
it feels a little le- it's sort of a whole b subplot though so it feels a little more natural it feels a little more baked into the actual narrative versus a uh cute cartoon sidekick okay third question final question does this connect at all to the scroll or have they completely shifted that over to the Disney plus shows and stuff? Uh, it does connect to the scroll. I don't think you need to necessarily have watched anything other than the first captain Marvel to understand what's going on though. Um, okay. there is a whole scroll thing going on on the Disney plus show that, uh, but it, it it's, it is not that that's another thing that I liked about this movie. It feels a lot more standalone than a lot of the more recent offerings. Like as long as you know, sort of what the scroll are and kind of their deal, you're fine. Um, okay. You don't need to know the whole MCU up to this point. Would you say that uh, somebody jumping into this would have, it would benefit to at least seen WandaVision? Um, honestly, I think you could probably miss it. The character Monica Rambeau is obviously introduced to that, and that's sort of her origin as far as her powers and stuff go, but Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessary to her character or to know what's going on here. Like, she has powers. That's literally all you need to know. Right. Yeah, and I believe Teona Paris plays her. And she's yes. an actress that I have been championing for a long time, and I'm glad she's getting the bag. She's and she's also great she's good in she's everything. A, she's a lot of fun. Like the three of them: Brie Larson, Tayona Paris, and Aman Vellani, who plays Kamala Khan. Um, yeah. they all have great chemistry. This is a really fun team, and I would love to see them. I, I would love to see them kind of all continue to have this sort of spinoff uh, team going forward. Because it, to me, this is I saw uh, the Miss Marvel show. It was fine. Like, it was OK. I don't think you necessarily need to watch that either to know what's going on. You just need to know she has powers and she's like a fangirl of Captain Marvel. But the three characters together uh, just work really well. Yeah, I don't. I it, the other stuff I think is sort of supplemental. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, what grade do you give it then? I'm gonna give it a solid B. I think this is it, it's just light and breezy and fun in a way that Marvel needs to be right now. Um, I I think the less they focus on sort of the next big thing. And like this feels very phase two or early phase three Marvel to me. And I think that's what I liked about it. Was it just most of those phases are a blur to me. I don't know where one ends and the other begins. I I agree. But what what I mean by that is it feels it feels before it was like ramping up to Endgame and Infinity War and before everything felt so connected. Mm-hmm. It it like it just is kind of the standalone fun adventure that I think e- even the most casual Marvel fans will appreciate. Okay. So I figure most people are probably going to catch them on Disney Plus now since most did not go see it. 
Hopefully, yeah. if it's as good as you say, uh, it can create some legs for future sequels. All right, let's move on to the long-awaited review of The Killer, <laughs> which was supposed to be a November uh, talking point, but I'll do my best to describe this movie. I was in my hospitalized state of stupor watching it on an iPad. Um, <laughs> this is the new film by David Fincher. Fincher has long since had a relationship with Netflix, uh, with Mindhunter and House of Cards, and Mank, his last film, was released direct to Netflix. So, uh, Mank, the trailer <laughs> where did that thing where everybody says the name like eight, you know, like they did a super cut of everybody saying Mank, 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 Mank. <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, so this is actually based on a graphic novel uh, by Luke Giacomon and adapted by Andrew Kevin Walker. This stars Michael Fassbender as a hitman only known as the killer officially. Uh, Throughout the film, he goes by many names. He kind of travels around, does a lot of hits. As he's traveling, he takes on a different persona. Uh, But his work is very... involves a lot of solitude. It's a lot of hurry up and wait. Mm -hmm. He he has to plan his hits. He has to make sure that everything is perfect to leave as little details as possible when he has to leave. And it can take anywhere from hours to days waiting for the right moment. Uh, We first meet him like this in Paris, I believe. And under every circumstance of his mantras and his sense of detail, somehow misses the hit and has to get out of there pretty quickly. He moves on to other hits and it becomes a question of these circumstances in his personal life and these other people involved in his life and was the hit sabotaged to sabotage him? Is he now being hunted? And are the people in his life in danger? And as well as just a, you know, fulfilling his commitments. Yeah, well, after the hit goes wrong, there's also sort of a cleanup crew that's said to kind of erase any trace of the job and of him and and he kind of has to reverse track that to its source mm-hmm. um you know to ensure his own safety and that his uh you know personal life um doesn't get affected yes and it's uh it becomes rather messy but at the same time very organized. He's, he's, he's of dual minds. And yeah. in classic uh, film noir fashion, most of the film is done in voiceover. Uh, mm-hmm. There's very few characters in the movie other than him and, and his, his targets. Uh, so what I liked about the movie and what I like about film noir when done well and narration when done well is that there's a conflict an unreliable narrator sort of brewing in him as he's trying to figure things out, as he's trying to work his way back through his targets and what what their motivations are. 
Well, what's nice is the narration is an internal monologue, right? It's right. it's not it's not just set up of here's what's happening, here's mm-hmm. all the backstory that we couldn't figure out another way to write around. Mm-hmm. It's this is the character's thoughts. So that could be inaccurate, it could be um you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to pertain to the plot. But it's a big part of the story is what he's sort of thinking as he's going through this process. Yes. And I would say the movie as a whole is smaller scale than we've seen Fincher do in a long time. It has its antecedents. You can see a little bit of Fight Club in the narration. Well, but I even think this is smaller scale than Fight Club. Oh, for sure. I'm just saying like, it feels almost like a footnote, like, a, yeah. you know, to that, like, take a little bit of that style, take a little bit of his classic noirs, like something like the game. But I mean, it, it, it's it's very much a David Fincher film, even if it's yeah. not as broad of scope story wise. I, I I have a few things of, of note there. Mm-hmm. Um Specifically, Fincher knows how to light a fucking dark scene like not many directors, apparently, these Mm -hmm. days. Uh, A lot of this takes place at night. A lot of this takes place in sort of poorly lit houses and, and, you know, and corridors where people wouldn't generally look. It's a very dark movie, but can see what's going on the entire time. I didn't have to like make sure all the blinds were shut and the lights were off. I although we did watch it that way. Um but he knows how to light a fucking scene. Um Yes. Which is insane that we even have to bring that up, but it's done so well here. Well, I mean Fincher comes from the world of photography and and music video and all of that stuff, advertisement. He's he knows how to do a set piece, even if it's in the well. And he knows space. he knows how to shoot it. He knows how to not just do a set piece, but he knows composition. He knows yeah. visual layout. He you know he knows lighting and color and all how all of these things affect the frame. Versus, you know, a lot of movies, it seems more and more nowadays, especially when it's in TV shows, when it's sort of a dark night scene, there's there's it gets very muddy very quickly. It's like they have the subject in frame, but they haven't taken light and color and composition into to effect. And uh, that was just something that stood out to me while watching this was just like the composition of the shots was so Perfect. Meticulously executed, yeah. Every time, yeah. I mean, I don't I think about, yes, they were dark scenes, but like there's a very glorious set piece towards the middle of the movie where he's in Florida with the dog and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's an, it's one of the few sort of action set pieces in this because uh, another thing I liked about this movie is it's sort of a reverse John Wick. (laughs) Right. Like it's it's kind of the same idea of, you know, this hitman, this this person on sort of the dark edge of society getting burnt and they have to do what they can to piece their lives back together. Very similar as far as plot goes there. 
But what I liked about it is it's such a slow burn. It's so it's not a lot of action. It's a lot of uh, it's a lot of fucked up shit. Um, It's a lot of. Yeah, he doesn't um, hold back on the violence when he wants to. No, and that's another thing that I appreciated. I was like, this is what Dexter should have been. Like, this is for real. Like, because they try to empathize too much with with something that's as broad of an audience, a target audience as Dexter, right? Mm-hmm. So they try to sympathize him too much. They try to justify it too much. And this, they, there's no justification. It's like, he's a fucking bastard, but he doesn't care. Like, that's just his job, Right. Like, I, I wouldn't even go so far as to call him a bastard or, I mean, an anti-hero maybe, but I think... Well, he's a sociopath. Well, is he, though? That's, oh, I think absolutely. The, I think the movie is constantly sort of asking that question, is does he do what he does because he's just so good at it? Or does he do what he does because he's he has some sort of obsession he's, he's chasing? Sure, but... To do both of those things, to follow that obsession, to be good in his skill set, he has to have this detachment. He has to have this level of when he's in professional mode right? of, of just absolute detachment, absolute, I don't care. I, I'm not thinking about anybody as a person. I'm only thinking about the situation. And the job and getting it done. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm just saying I think that's markedly different than a serial killer who's trying to satiate some sort of fixation. No, I said a sociopath. A sociopath is different than a serial killer, right? Like a lot of serial killers are sociopaths because that sociopathy and I'm not like a psychology major or anything. <laughs> so I you know, I could be misunderstanding this, but the idea is that detachment from empathy and that is what makes him good at what he does it doesn't he's not he's not a psychopath he's not just you know rampant destruction for destruction's sake or anything like that it is he has this ability to completely detach his emotions from mm-hmm. the situation and that is why he's good at what he does a motif that i found interesting and don't entirely know what to do with, but I enjoyed it nonetheless, uh, is this common recurrence of him listening to the Smiths, waiting yeah. for <laughs> waiting well, for his target. I, I thought that was an interesting thing as well, because he, he mentions early on that he likes to listen to music while he's working. Yeah. Because it helps him sort of like tune out everything else. But every time it's the Smiths. Right. And I, I did, I was like, is there... Is, this is a, there something to be said there? Yeah. Are we, is this a dig at Morrissey or... Right. Is this a... Uh, maybe it was something that was just in the comic book that... I Yeah, I, yeah, don't, I don't know. But I... But it, but it, it is... It worked. A- after the third Smith song, I was like, this is intentional. Like, oh, for sure. Th- this is... There's a point to the fact that it's always the Smiths. Well, I think it almost has something to do with his his sense of routine. It's like he can't be bothered sure. to shuffle and find other artists. It's just what he needs at the time. That I I think that makes a lot of sense. Like I just who care this is just like my kill playlist. And right. you know, <laughs> I can't think about, you know, I I don't want 
fucking Michael Jackson popping in there because that's yeah. going to throw off my game. <laughs> so I just need some mopey post-punkers. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, he wears the same hat. He doesn't look like you would think a uh, ser- or a, not serial killer, but a hitman would look. He he wears like a bucket hat and Hawaiian shirts and yeah, he he kind of is sort of uh, constantly intentionally dressing like a dork, like a tourist. Like mm-hmm. he he blends in by sticking out, but not by sticking out so much that he sticks out. Right, and you know, as a fan of Michael Fassbender, who's been kind of dormant lately, it was really great to see him be able to sink his teeth into. A full-on character piece. Well, this is also so in his wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. This is like, I'm sure that he was like the first call on the sheet. Yeah, we wrote this for Michael. (laughs) Like, he just, it it just fit him so well. But, But also, you know, there are a bunch of good performances sort of around him. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about him. Yeah. I was really taken by... Uh, Charles Parnell as the lawyer and Carrie O'Malley as his accomplice. And that whole sequence is one of the more uh, eyebrow raising. I would say horrific. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is, like I said, this isn't, this isn't a John Wick movie where the setups are for action. This it, It's more about Tension. seeing sort of how far this character can go. Um, once once he's caught once he's in a, a place of real struggle mm-hmm. and that sequence in particular was like pretty horrifying i thought yeah and and also really well written and really well shot mm-hmm. and very well sequenced for tension and you never know you every time you think he's done he has a step further to go <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah definitely yeah, uh, but we also have uh, uh, Tilda Swinton. She shows up. She was sort of the next big sort of scene set piece. And, and yeah. the most we really sort of get to see him interact with someone on on a level that's not... The power dynamic isn't totally controlled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of the other scenes, you know, there's the vi- the very violent scene that is different sort of control exertion there's the scene with uh his lawyer and then there's this scene which is sort of almost an intellectual battle and an empathetical battle which i thought was really interesting and well done yeah because they're both they're both hitmen they both understand their line of work yeah they they know exactly what the outcome of the situation is going to be Right. And it it's just interesting to see that played out from sort of an emotional standpoint. And then at the end, there's a big epilogue with the the main target, a billionaire of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels almost, yeah, it almost it's capping off everything. It's sort of bringing everything full circle. That scene is cool because it's, it's him interacting with a tourist mm-hmm. of this world and that person getting to see what this world really is. Like, you know, it's easy for him to pay, you know, a, a hit amount on a spreadsheet or whatever 
Um, but he gets to sort of experience what that world actually is. Right. And I, I, I thought that was a really cool scene. Um, and that also goes back to what you were saying about uh, detachment, because I think they're they're both living on two levels of detachment. In in yeah. the case of of the killer, in the case of Michael Fassbender, he is uh, simply getting a job accomplished, doing what he's told to do, and getting paid for it, and has a, has to detach to be able to do that. And in mm-hmm. the case of this this high powered executive or whatever he is, he has a different kind of attachment that's sort of like one percenter mind of I am above the ants. Yeah. Well, again, like to him, it was, it was probably just uh, a balance on a spreadsheet. You, you pay Mm. this amount, the thing happens, it didn't happen. And okay, well now I pay the insurance to make sure it's all cleaned up. Okay. What would you grade it? This one's kind of hard. Uh, I'm I'm going to say an A minus. I feel like this is, you know, this is Fincher operating at a really high level. Everybody knows what's going on. The I think the only takeaway, and this would probably go away um, on subsequent viewings, is it felt a little smaller sure. than I was sort of expecting. Um, a little contenty, but not. I wouldn't say in a bad way. No, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but that's that's sort of my only nitpick with it is, um, it's so intimate that sometimes it, it feels a little like the scale of it gets, a, I think, a little lost. Um, but I think the story itself was great. Everybody's operating at you know their top game and it is a refreshingly clean movie from a netflix release right and a great example of modern film noir um i uh i called this movie a mini masterpiece in my letterbox review uh i think it's pretty much untouchable yeah you could tweak this or that or whatever expand this expand that but it works so well and so tight the way that mm-hmm. it is i wouldn't want to mess with it too much yeah um and in fact that you know in the tradition of classic b movie noirs they weren't much bigger than this <laughs> that's true usually and, and, smaller <laughs> and you know we might get into that a little bit with our our next review but um yeah as far as a modern noir goes it is pretty much perfect yeah I, I would put it up there with with recent ones like nightcrawler yeah um, it kind of had that vibe to it that sort of nocturnal uh loneliness obsession creepy kind of thing yeah um and as well as it reminded me a lot of sort of the euro thrillers that that yeah. came out. it reminded me a lot of la samurai I thought a lot about Les Samurai while watching it. Like, it, that was def- like clearly an influence on this movie. Yeah, Melville. Um, which, I mean, clearly that was an influence on Fincher in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I did think about that a lot. Just be, you know, maybe it was just the Euro setting, but like, just sort of the story about cleaning up these loose threads and, and, and the inter- stylish. The super super internal space that we're living in. Yeah. With with the character. 
It also reminded me a bit of a Jack Nicholson film uh, the uh, director uh, Antonioni made. He was an Italian director, uh, but he made a film in America uh, called The Passenger in 1975, which was a very quiet, non-typical thriller. Cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, gi- I give the movie an A-minus as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of funny how, like, and I'll talk about this more once we get to our year in review. Um, I felt like I had my list pretty locked in, but the last, like, month or so of movies I've seen have just sort of totally thrown everything in the air of, like, oh, fuck, well, this is also a, a modern masterpiece and this is a modern masterpiece and it's just like that time of the year yeah everyone and also you know we we like to complain about awards season and awards bait and all that stuff but this is a kind of different year as far as that goes because it's it's a lot of our best directors it's a lot of auteur heavy stuff yeah yeah um and i have to get to it all and i'm hoping i get to <laughs> yeah yeah, totally. Before I can really put my list down, we haven't even seen, uh, you know the the uh, the Emma Stone thing. Oh, the the Yorgo Lanthimos one. Yeah, I want to see that really bad. I want to see uh, the new Alexander Payne film, The Holdovers. Yeah. yeah. So there's, uh, I still got a few. I'm, I don't know if I should see Napoleon, but. Uh, part of me wants to anyway <laughs> oh i i feel like i have to see it but yeah. Uh, yeah i know what you mean like i yeah napoleon and the holdovers are the ones that i really am like i need to see those kind of before the end of the year mm-hmm. all right well let's move on then to the last segment we're speeding right along we will be talking about the film out of the past from 1947. This is available to watch on HBO Max. Keith, give us the rundown. All right. Robert Mitchum is this character who's sort of living happy, quiet life as a as this owner of sort of a gas station, service station. He's seeing this woman uh he he's got this kind of life established for him in this sort of sleepy small town when all of a sudden uh this character comes and beckons him to meet with this old employer who originally hired him for a job to track this woman who he ended up falling in love with and running away with. And so he feels compelled to go and hear what this guy has to say because he doesn't know how much he knows of this past situation. And as it turns out, he wants him to get involved into another situation (laughs) even deeper. And, you know, the whole time the character doesn't know, is this a setup? Uh, is this, you know, does he know what I did with his uh, lover or or can I skirt around this new situation 
and and sort of find my way out of it and back to you know my life in this sleepy town um and then on top of that he's reintroduced to this old to this old love interest who he originally had run away with and you know is she going to tempt him to go back to this life on the run or can he return to his normal life or does he want to yeah that's yeah. the other question is how much of this is is what he wants and what he enjoys and like and you know is he still in love with her and all of the things right so jane greer plays our main femme fatale kathy and kirk douglas a very young kirk douglas plays wit sterling the main Holy antagonist shit <laughs> i haven't really i haven't really seen a lot of especially this era kirk douglas mm -hmm. he sounds just like michael douglas he sounds and looks just <laughs> like michael douglas it's oh, yeah. sort of insane like i you know i'm used to an older kirk douglas more spartacus uh, age <laughs> yeah but i'm like oh holy fuck like the the seed is strong <laughs> on the douglas tree yeah yeah <laughs> for sure so the reason I picked this movie, besides the fact that we were doing Noir Vember um, at the time, is that this is one of my favorite noirs because it, it plays around with the form a little bit. Oh, so you've seen this before, you fucking cheater. You know the rules. As long as <laughs> the person assigning has, has seen uh -huh, it and the other uh -huh. one hasn't, it's fine. Sure, uh, but it has been a hot minute since I seen. I watched this in school a long time ago. But okay, what I like about it is it kind of messes with the form a little bit. It's sort of bifurcated. We have mm -hmm. sort of you know these two halves of the story, and you know if anybody's seen the film uh, A History of Violence, some of these story beats probably sound very familiar. Yeah. Um. Uh. Of course, that movie's a lot more violent and a lot more kind of quick and dirty, but this one, you know, plays around with all of the tropes that you see in noir, but it it goes a little deeper, I think. It it, it it's it's well, the, not the, quite Casablanca to the point where mm -hmm. we're genre stretching so much, but it is there's more character dynamic, there's more to learn about these people, there's more edges to their motivations. And more to well, guess. And, and just sort of uh, structurally speaking, it, it sort of breaks the mold in a lot of ways. Like, mm -hmm. yes, we have this character, you know, with this sordid past, but like the way that's introduced, it, it almost feels like a different movie at the start of it. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of this slow awakening. And. We get a bunch of the story sort of narrated by Robert Mitchum as he's confessing to his current love, but it, it feels different than sort of the way a noir narrative normally structures that. Like, right. you know, a lot of times we get more like the Sunset Boulevard of this is how I ended up in the gutter kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, you know sort of introduced halfway through and then we're caught up to the story and 
uh, in a way that we don't know what the final resolution is going to be. Right. And the second half of the movie is this big guessing game of who's screwing over who and what's everyone's real motivations. I did start to get a little lost <laughs> in this portion of the movie just because of that, yeah. Um, because there's so many sort of twists and turns and motive and and yeah, you don't know how much Kirk Douglas knows. You don't know how plotting Kathy is. You don't know like all of these things of like okay, so who's actually telling the truth here? Um, but you get that from you know Robert Mitchum's perspective. Uh, which is nice. Yes. One thing we can agree to, Kathy ain't afraid to kill a bitch. No. She just straight no. up was like, no loose ties. I don't give a crap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she she is, I will do w literally whatever I have to to get out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes her dangerous. You know, is it easier to kill you or is it easier to seduce you? Both are viable mm -hmm. options as long as I get to live. Right. She's very good at playing duplicitous and, you know, playing both sides. And and you never know whose good I mean, side she's playing. the cast is fucking great. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Robert Mitchum is... Classic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, maybe the least complicated character because we sort of get in his headspace a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Jane Greer, we never know what side she's on or what she's playing next. Kirk Douglas, we never know how much he knows. He's so scary in this movie. <laughs> I, I, I was like, damn, I didn't know I could be like that intimidated, but by this noir character from 47 fucking. Yeah. But he plays it so sort of sleazy but he holds you know he sort of holds the card so close to his chest that you never know how much he knows and right. um and of course really he has well all of his soldiers yeah yeah and and uh yeah it's just constant sort of cat and mouse going through the movie well, he he absolutely has like those the resources right mm -hmm. like he's this the sort of godfather mafioso kingpin type guy and so you know that, like, oh, if he figured this out, I'm dead. Like, the, like, there's nothing I can do about it. But how much does he actually know? Or is he just fucking with me? And uh, I, I found that dynamic, like, all of the scenes between him and Robert Mitchum were just this, like, delicate cat and mouse, which were a lot of fun to watch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both actors get to chew up the scenery. For sure. And speaking of that, uh, it's really, you know, Robert Mitchum is an interesting actor to follow because, you know, this is how he started out is the hunky noir guy who was, you know, usually down on his luck. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we get to the 60s, he's Knight of the Hunter in Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And turned yeah. into this brute. Um, and then he had a yeah, kind I mean of a bit of a comeback in the 70s, too. Knight of the Hunter, you know, his his character, I think, is you uh, know, a monster. One the, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the scariest antagonists I think ever put to film. Yeah. Pretty close. But just 
this is still when he was young and brashing and, you know, the guy you painted on the poster. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, but he's he's gorgeous too. Like yeah. that chin, the he he has these sort of he has movie you know, star features. Oh, absolutely. Especially of that time. He he has those sort of uh lover's eyes, I guess. Um just like you can see pain in them, but also it seems withhold like yeah, he's just he's great. He's a fucking movie star. <laughs> yeah. And you know, a lot of people who maybe don't watch movies this old or you know, turned off by the idea of black and white film, things like that. Um, first of all, this movie shot gorgeously. Uh, there's yeah, so many it, great silhouettes and lighting schemes. Also, other than the the sort of lack of um, underscore, it feels pretty modern. Like, and, yeah. and moves pretty quickly. Like, you, you mm. know, you know, right away we're sort of introduced to this threat with the the guy in the trench coat. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and it moves a lot quicker than I think movies from this era can be known to move. Uh, this was released by RKO at the time, and RKO was known as a smaller movie house. They weren't doing the epics, and they weren't doing the mm-hmm. musicals. They did movies like this, and they did, you know, low-budget horror and things like that. In fact, I believe... Uh, Yes, uh, Jacques Tourneur, uh, the director, he got his start doing Val Luton films like Cat People. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he he brought that sort of that shadowy. We're yeah. gonna you know, we're gonna try and scare you without showing you anything because we have no budget. Uh, <laughs> into. Well, there's a, a tension. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a sort of tension lurking underneath the scenes. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the character dynamics. But like you said, it's it's shot really well and and really clean for the time. Mm-hmm. The performances are very naturalistic. There's not a mm. lot of, like, screaming to the rafters like you're in a play. I mean, the dialogue yeah, it, is stylized, but the performances themselves are very naturalized. Yeah, the the he meets one lady later on um, who who feels almost like she's in a slightly different movie. She's a little, uh, she's a little operatic, I think. Yeah, um, not everybody, but, but but I I agree with what you're saying, especially for the time. It feels very natural. It doesn't it, it doesn't feel like a stage play, and a really good use of exteriors when they can use them real exteriors yeah also uh there's uh a deaf character that's kind of interesting and they give a little bit more to do with than i i was kind of expecting mm-hmm. um and i i think that you know there's there's just kind of these interesting dynamics throughout the movie as far as status and power dynamics go mm-hmm. yeah you know i kind of have to be in a mood to go into movies from this era sure. I, I think you know probably most people do um but you know i i think this holds up uh alongside uh some of the best that i've seen like um by orson welles touch of evil oh yeah and you can see how it sort of influenced things going forward. All right, cool. 
uh, what is going to be the streaming homework for next week? Or uh, you next episode, rather. <laughs> yeah, the, for next time. Um, you specifically asked for something that was holiday-themed. Um, so I am going to make you watch The Night Before from 2015, um, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Seth Rogen, Anthony Mackie, is currently streaming on Tubi. Mm-hmm. I'm a little nervous at the phrasing, make you watch, as opposed to request that you I'm going watch. to have I'm going to have you watch okay uh, yeah my my pick was the night before okay I remember when it came out I didn't get to it um now it's good as time as any so cool. uh, we appreciate everybody who has followed the show listens to the show continues to listen to the show when we don't put out episodes and uh promotes us when you can word of mouth is our best friend so we would love if this episode reaches uh, a few more people than normal. So tell all your friends, Taking Back Sunday. <laughs> and if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics that we talked about on this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under at mcguffinpod. Drop us a line there. Give us a follow. And I already mentioned, best way to listen to us is Spotify, iTunes, Player.fm, Good Pods. There are, I think we're on all of them. Uh, leave us a star rating and a one-sentence review, and we will uh, be very much appreciative of that as well. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy and on Letterboxd, I believe under the same moniker, Cassidy Robinson or VC Cassidy. I think that's it for me for now. Keith, what about you? <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Also, if you're in the San Diego area and would like to see me perform, I do improv uh, on the shows Improv vs. Stand-Up and Lyrics and Laughs um, at Mockingbird Improv here in San Diego and Liberty Station. Um, check out MockingbirdImprov.org for the full schedule of shows. Um, and I'd love to see you come out sometime. Yes. And I believe that is the end of the episode. Of those who like to put their faith in the inherent goodness of mankind, I have to ask, based on what exactly? Bye.